6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapter 10, verse 5 through chapter 12. We speak glibly of the 70 years captivity of Babylon, but it turns out that there are three sieges of Nebuchadnezzar. The first siege of Nebuchadnezzar was in 606 B.C., where he lays siege to Jerusalem and succeeds in the siege, making Jerusalem a vassal province of Babylon. He sets up a vassal king because his dad has died. He's got to go home and take over the empire. So he goes to Nebuchadnezzar the general, comes back as Nebuchadnezzar the king, with a vassal king in Jerusalem. That starts the servitude of the nation. The servitude of the nation starts from the first siege of Nebuchadnezzar. Jeremiah and Ezekiel and others are preaching to the people, yield to Nebuchadnezzar, he's God's instrument. The false prophets tell the king and the people, no, we're the chosen people, God's going to deliver us. Jeremiah says, no, he's not, he's judging you for 70 years. They consider Jeremiah a traitor, throw him in prison as a traitor. But anyway, the net of it all is that they do rebel, contrary to what Jeremiah said. Jeremiah says, if you rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, God is going to destroy the city of Jerusalem. You're slaves, yes, but at least you have your city, etc. If you rebel, it's going to be destroyed. They don't listen, they rebel. Nebuchadnezzar lays a second siege in Jerusalem, replaces the first king with another king, Zedekiah. And in Zedekiah, same thing. Jeremiah says, hey, don't rebel. Ezekiel, said, who's writing from Babylon, said, he's a slave, don't rebel. Zedekiah rebels. And uh, by this time, this is Nebuchadnezzar's had a belly full of the whole operation, lays siege, and levels the place, destroys Jerusalem, takes them all slaves. That starts a period called the desolations of Jerusalem. There are two periods of time, the servitude of the nation, which starts from the first siege of Nebuchadnezzar, and their slaves to Babylon for 70 years to the very day. The desolations of Jerusalem start with a third siege of Nebuchadnezzar, 19 years later. And it also lasts for 70 years. By some strange bureaucratic mix-up, there's, there's a major delay from the time Cyrus authorized the basics till Artaxerxes Langemanus finally does issue the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. It's also 70 years to the day. The servitude of the nation is 70 years. The desolations of Jerusalem are 70 years. And because they're both 70 years, most commentators, most scholars assume they're synonyms. They're not. They're not coterminous. You say, okay, Chuck, well, what do I do with this 2,483 years, 9 months, and 21 days? If you count from the termination of the servitude of the nation, Israel, you come to May 14th of 1948, when David Ben-Gurion, using Ezekiel as his authority, named the Jewish homeland, new Jewish homeland, Israel. May 14th of 1948. What a coincidence that the nation is established... 2,483 years, 9 months, and 21 days after the terminus of the servitude of the nation. Well, that could be coincidental. The rabbis, of course, have a phrase that coincidence is not a kosher word. The third siege of Nebuchadnezzar, which starts the desolations of Jerusalem. You take your 70 years desolation, count from that period, 2,483 years, 9 months, and 21 days. 
and you come to June 7th of 1967, when as a result of the Six-Day War, Israel regains control for the first time since Christ's crucifixion, the control of the old city. Interesting, interesting precision. But without getting into all those technicalities, verse 11, it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people. And by the way, it's not just from Shinar. Look where it's from. Who shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros? Pathros was upper Egypt, upriver. And from Cush, Ethiopia. But Ethiopia in a broader sense than the province we know. And from Elam. Read that, Persia. And from Shinar. Read that, Iraq or southern Iraq or Babylon. And from Hamath and from the coastlands of the sea, wherever that is. Is that the U.S. or what you name it? The point is, from all over the world. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. You notice God is blind and he lost ten tribes. He's got the dispersed of Judah and he's got the outcasts of Israel lumped together. The twelve tribes. There are no lost tribes. That's nonsense. The envy of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. Judah is being used as an idiom for the southern kingdom, and Ephraim is an idiom for the northern kingdom. They're no longer going to hassle each other, as they have since the days that Solomon died. But the second time, when is the second time? Started on May 14th of 1948. And by the way, as you and I pick up Time Magazine or Newsweek or the Daily Paper or watch CNN, what are we seeing? Absorption problems in Israel because of all the Russian Jews that are moving into Israel. And we read about the airlifts of the Ethiopian Jews being moved. In. Hey, that not that Kush? Right? And so on. We're watching it happen. The third, fourth time? No, the second time. There's no third or fourth time. This is it, gang. God is moving, as Isaiah said he would. It's happening before our very eyes. And just don't, don't let the, the familiarity with it mask the amazement you should see. Knowing the scripture. God is moving. He, God means what he says and says what he means. Amos 3.7 says, God does nothing but that which he reveals to his servants, the prophets. He not only reveals what he's doing, he doesn't do anything he hasn't revealed. He's doing it. It's happening. Go there and see. Israel's got all kinds of problems. Because all these Russians are trained mathematicians, engineers. They need farmers and people that can fix automobiles and practical people. All these Russians are brilliant theoreticians. And they've got some real problems. And you see these guys with three or four PhDs on the street corners uh, making falafels or something, trying to figure out some way to make a living. Because Israel's got problems, you know, trying to create jobs for all these people. Highly talented people, but not practical. And it's, you know, some very interesting things as you visit Israel and get to know the people as they try to help these people coming in who are, you know, uh, sort of amusingly impractical, many of them. And there's some of those, there's some, see, in the early days of Israel, the people came, they were farmers and peasants and people of the land. And, well, they got problems now because these people come and they have a whole different idea, you know. Uh, they want a job as a theoretical physicist. Well, that's great. How many theoretical physicists does a, you know, a nation need? You know, 
But in any case, uh, the point is, uh, it's all happening, and it's interesting to watch them uh, uh, adjust. And uh, they are. You watch the neighbors come over and try to help them, and it's uh, it, there's interesting. Uh, it, but the point is, God is doing exactly what Isaiah said in Isaiah eleven eleven, the second time. And this is the second time, gang. Worldwide. Regathering. And of course, Ezekiel in chapters 35, 36, and 37 deal with that. Point out that they are going to, God is going to regather them. And Ezekiel 36, God says, I'm doing it for my reputation's sake, not yours. Let's just pause for a minute. Turn to Ezekiel 36. Don't misunderstand. I'm not trying to sound pro-Israel in the sense that Israel can do no wrong. Hardly. That's not the point. God says in Ezekiel chapter 36, pick it up about to verse 17, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own way and by their doings. Their way is before me as the uncleanness of a defiled woman. Wherefore I poured my fury upon them for the blood that they had shed upon the land and for their idols by which they had polluted it. And I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries according to their way and according to their doings. I judged them. And when they entered into the nations to which they went, they profaned my holy name. And when they said unto them, These are the people of the Lord, and are gone forth of his land. Verse 21, But I had pity for my holy namesake which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they went. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which ye have profaned among the nations to which ye went. And I will, sure, I will sanctify my great name, which is profaned among the nations, which ye have profaned in the midst of them. And, I, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, uh, the Lord, saith the Lord God, and I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. What's God saying? Not because you deserve it, because my reputation's on the line. I told the heathen I was going to do it, so I better do it. My honor's on the line, not yours. You don't deserve it. Is Israel being regathered and blessed by God because they deserve it? No. Because God said he would, and what he, what he says he's going to do, he does. And he is. We watch what's happening. And, of course, Ezekiel describes how they're brought together, but not with the Spirit, not in belief. There is an event that will shock them into orthodoxy, so to speak. That's an invasion by the Soviet Union described in Ezekiel 38 and 39 in which five-sixths of the field forces are wiped out, in which they, the weapons left over provide the energy needs of Israel for seven years, in which they spend seven months before going in the battlefield to clean it up, and then after seven months they send professionals in to clean it up to bury the bones east of the Jordan downwind. And if anybody goes through the valley and sees a bone they missed, he doesn't touch it. They mark the location that the professionals come and deal with it. That was Ezekiel 2,500 years ago. That's the event that shocks Israel into really understanding that God is once again dealing with Israel. If God is dealing with Israel, he's not dealing with the church anymore. Daniel 9, the 70-week prophecy. God deals with Israel and the church mutually exclusively. He doesn't deal with the church until Israel rejected the kingdom. Then he deals, calls out a people for his name, compel, go to the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. And uh, Paul spends three chapters, 9, 10, and 11 of Romans, pointing out that God is not through with Israel. He will deal with it when the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Come in where? Romans 11.25. God won't deal with Israel until the church is raptured. Then once again he will deal with Israel in some heavy-handed ways. Very, That's a whole other thing we'll get to. But in the meantime, to prepare himself for that, he's regathering Israel. How long has he done that? Since 48. And it's intensifying. It's happening before our very eyes. Boy, there's nothing more timely than Isaiah 11.11. It's happening, my friends. 
Verse 14, But they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines toward the west, and they shall spoil them of the east together, and they shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab, and the children of Ammon shall obey them. Boy, that'll be new. And the Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea, and with his mighty wind shall he shake his hand over the river. The river here is the Euphrates. And shall smite it in the seven streams and make men go over it dry shod. It seems to me he did that once before. And there shall be a highway. There's Isaiah's interesting idiom. He uses the word highway frequently. There shall be a highway for the remnant of the people who shall be left from Assyria, like it was to Israel in the day that he came up out of the land of Egypt. Exciting chapter, chapter 11. Chapter 12 is a short little chapter, and I'd like to sort of, we've got a little time to just whip it off. Uh, Chapter 12 is really a psalm, quite a straightforward psalm in many respects. You can compare it, if you will, in your notes to uh, uh, Exodus uh, 15 which is also a hymn of of sorts. And there's a number of these in the Scripture, um, but we'll just jump in. Chapter 12, verse 1, And in that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee, and though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. Pause, friends. That isn't easy to do. Though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away. God cannot do that without it being paid for. God can't forgive sin without it being paid for. That would cloud his integrity. God has anger with sin. Sin is a stench in his nostrils. That has to be dealt with. It has to be dealt with through death. So it says, Thou wast angry with me. Thine anger is turned away. Hidden in that little comma is the cross. That Jesus Christ paid for it to make it possible for God to turn his anger away and comfort us without violating his integrity because he took out the penalty on Jesus Christ. Behold, God is my salvation indeed. That's the whole point. God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid for the Lord. Even the Lord is my strength and my song. He also is become my salvation. It's hard to visualize Isaiah as an Old Testament book. It sounds like it's the New Testament. Sounds like written by Paul, doesn't it? I mean, it just it reads like one of Paul's epistles. Anyway, what's well, actually a psalm, but you get what I'm trying to say. Verse 3. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. Here's where you can pencil in your notes if you want. 1 Corinthians 10.4. This is where you can pencil in John 4.4. 4. John 7.37. I am the living water. The woman at the well. All those idioms. The living water. New Testament ideas? No, it comes out of Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. That's not H2O. That's the living water. Revelation 7, Revelation 21, 16, Revelation 22, 17. You can do your own word study on that one. Verse 4. And in that day shall ye say, Praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his doings among the people, make mention that his name be exalted. His name is exalted. God places his name very high. There's only one thing that's higher than the name of God. His word. You got it. It's amazing when you realize how God, how jealous God is of his name, because you see many passages like Isaiah 12, 4, and yet his word is even above his name. Because his word became flesh and dwelt among us. Pilate asked a cynical question, what is truth? Right? great definition of truth when the word and the deed become one 
That's truth. Right? When the word and the deed become one. God's word, his promise throughout the Old Testament becomes fulfilled when the deed fits the word. That is when the word becomes incarnate, is made flesh and dwells among us and goes to the cross to pay for you and I. Sing unto the Lord, verse 5, for he hath done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. Neat little psalm tucked away in Isaiah. A breath of fresh air. And it ends the first section of Isaiah. The next section is chapters 13 through 23. Isaiah now is going to turn his attention from Israel. See, all this had to do with uh, Judah and Jerusalem and the threat of Assyria and all that. Now he's going to shift gears and he's going to do a sweep of the nations. Chapters 13 and 14 would be Babylon, 15 and 16 would be Moab, 17 Syria through Damascus. Uh, 18 is a little strange. Some writers like to think that the United States is visible in chapter 18. We'll deal with that when we get there. It is some maritime province west of Ethiopia. If it is the U.S., you don't learn anything. There's no great insight from it, but we'll deal with that. Chapter 19 deals with Egypt, but chapter 19 also has a provocative mystery because it mentions what appears to be the Great Pyramid, which was not Egyptian. And it's interesting, they apparently have solved the, the, the writers that have solved the py, riddle of pyramid inches. Uh, and, and we'll talk about the pyramid when we get to chapter 19. And the Hebrew value, verse 19 of chapter 19 mentions the Great Pyramid, and the Hebrew adds up to the height of the pyramid in inches. So there's a lot of interesting conjectures that we'll poke around a little bit when we get to chapter 19. Be prepared to have seatbelts on and be prepared for some stuff that's really off the wall and probably wrong, but a lot of fun. Verse 20 is Egypt and Ethiopia. I mean, chapter 20. Chapter 21 is Edom and Africa. 22, Palestine, perhaps. And then 23, Tyre. Now, we're going to take the sweep. But I'd like you this time to do some homework before the next time we meet. Because the next time we meet, we're going to take chapter 13 and half of chapter 14. And the subject will be Babylon. But I'd like you to do something at one city. The assignment I'd like to give you, I'd like you to execute... Sometime when you can be undisturbed for, say, half an hour or whatever it'll take you to read. Three pairs of chapters. Six chapters. But they come, each in, they come in pairs. I'd like you, before we meet next time, to read on your own Isaiah 13 and 14. Just read it. I'd like you to read Jeremiah 50 and 51 at the same time. And I'd like you to read Revelation 17 and 18. Isaiah 13 and 14, Jeremiah 15 51, and Revelation 17 and 18. And I'd like you to do it at one sitting so that you will pick up the idioms in all six chapters. But you really need to experience it for yourself for you to appreciate the integrity of those six chapters on the one hand and yet the strange differences on the other so that we can deal with this. Because the thing you're going to clearly see is that all six chapters are dealing with the same issue, Babylon. And I don't mean allegorical, mystical, symbolic Babylon. I'm talking about a city that's 62 miles south of Baghdad on the Euphrates being rebuilt today. Don't let anyone tell you that Babylon was destroyed in 539 B.C. Wrong. Don't confuse the fall of Babylon to the Persians with the destruction of Babylon talked about in the Bible. It never happened. 
commentators and Bible dictionaries and Bible handbooks are wrong. Cyrus, if you go to the museum in London, Cyrus the Persian who conquered Babylon brags in the steel of Cyrus there in the London Museum that he did it without a battle. And he did. He conquered Babylon by very, very clever tactics, and we'll go over that. But the point is, Babylon did not get destroyed. It became his capital. A couple hundred years later, when, when uh, Alexander the Great, in 322 uh, B.C., conquers the Persians, he makes Babylon his capital. The destruction described in the Bible says it was never to be inhabited. It was destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. That's never happened. The destruction of Babylon has never happened. That means it is yet to happen. But how can it? There is no Babylon. Wrong. For the last 19 years, Saddam Hussein has been rebuilding Babylon. We'll talk about that next time. To really understand Isaiah 13 and 14, you need to understand that because you'll never unscramble the confusion that CNN has about the Middle East. They don't know what an Arab is. They don't know what the issues are in Iraq. And unless you have a biblical background, it'll go by you. And yet, if you do have a biblical background, hang on. It is really off the wall and exciting. Babylon is being rebuilt. few ceremonial buildings. Don't misunderstand me. But it is being rebuilt. And Zechariah 5, those of you who want to do a little more homework, can dig into the last half of Zechariah 5, and, and we'll talk about the shift of world power from wherever it is, presumably Europe, to Babylon, the day of the Lord. It all started there. It's all going to return there for God to judge it. It's happening before our eyes. And you, if you understand Isaiah 13 and 14 and Jeremiah 15 and 51, you have some hope of understanding Revelation 17 18, which goes even beyond that. Because Revelation 17 is not all allegorical, although part of it is. And we'll try to resolve that next time when we're together. One of the most interesting, provocative, challenging passages in prophecy. But what's the net of it all, friends? Let's not lose sight of the, over the big picture. The Bible says that there'll be a super state emerging in Europe at the time of the end. It's happening. With a population three times the United States, an industrial base probably second to... The none but perhaps Asia is the European super state emerging as we speak. Great. Bible says that Babylon's going to emerge as a superpower, both ecclesiastically, politically, and economically. And it's, ha it's beginning, just a thread, but it's visible clearly. It was not a target during the Persian Gulf crisis. How interesting. How is it going to be rebuilt? I don't know. Japan and Germany was built by our money, so we'll see what happens in Iraq. Don't confuse Iraq with Babylon. And don't confuse Babylon with Nineveh, that is Assyria. We'll talk about that. There are a lot of Bible teaching going around that's a little confusing. Be very careful. You need to do your own homework because it's a moving target every day. And what's your anchor point? The Scripture, not some interpretation by Chuck Missler or anybody else. But you want to do your own homework and watch it because we're all learning daily what's going on. But your base, your baseline is what Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the rest of them lay on, lay on you. And while all this is going, the Bible is looking forward a world leader who's going to be entangled up with the rebuilding of a temple and its subsequent desecration. And it's happening. Boy, what does that mean for you and I? It changes priorities if you're paying attention. God is in a hurry. He's moving. It's happening. Well, I shouldn't say he's in a hurry. God is never rushed. I don't mean it that way. But he is moving right along. And uh, shortly these things come to pass. The word shortly in the Greek is a taxa, like a tachometer, quickly. They are happening quickly. Look at the Berlin Wall. Boy, that caught everybody by surprise. The temple may be the same kind of thing. Babylon may reemerge in, in ways that will catch the secular analyst totally bewildered by surprise. 
not you and I, because we have an advantage. We have the script written from outside our time domain, the end from the beginning, history written in advance. Why? For the same reason, that's what, what uh, Jesus said to Abraham. Is, not, is he not my friend? Shall I not show him what's going to happen? Right? The concept of friendship with God has always dealt with giving a foreview what's happening. Right? Jesus said to his disciples, you've been my servants, henceforth ye shall be called my friends. And it was tied to what? His revealing. I go to prepare a place for you and so forth. Right? Interesting. God has chosen to let you and I know what's happening before it happens. Not with some predictive aspect so much as just making us conscious of who he is and to appreciate his glory and his power and his majesty as he sets out to do what the scripture calls his strange work. But it's happening. And boy, is that a time to really do your homework. Learn this book. Find out what they say. Do your homework. It's exciting. You've got a halftime breather. Use it before the game gets underway. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Jesus Christ is the issue. The temple isn't. Babylon isn't. Europe isn't. Jesus Christ is the issue. And he not only wants to be number one on your list of ten, he wants to be number one on your list of one. He wants to be your partner. He wants to be your savior. He wants to be your Lord. He wants to be your intimate, personally, directly. And he will, if you ask him to. He's a gentleman. He won't violate your sovereignty. We speak of the sovereignty of God. The important sovereignty, in a sense, is your sovereignty. Terrifying thing when you realize its implications. The shrewd thing is to hand it right back to him. Quickly. Let him take charge. He'll straight it out. Don't wait until you got your act together. You'll never get it together. He'll get it together for you. He's done the whole job. But he insists upon doing the whole job. You can't add to it. He's done the whole thing on a cross 1,900 years ago. But he would have you learn of him, learn his claims, learn his word, in the old as well as the new. Not a few cliches. The whole counsel of God. Prophecy is not the future. Prophecy is his whole plan in view from beginning to end. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.